2: Not the
0: donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth
2: over tribe. Do you?
0: Every day you ask and answer this question. What could I do today that would set my life on the course of a better life? Hold on. I
2: do not ask myself that
0: question No, every you day. do. <laughs> every day you ask and answer that question whether you do it consciously or subconsciously.
2: Okay, okay, fair.
0: Because you're making choices all the time and people go on diets or they start saving money or they plan a vacation or they get engaged or they start a new job or they think about moving and all of those are trying to answer the question of what would make me happier in my life? What would make it a better, more enjoyable,
2: more prosperous, flourishing life. Yeah, and so I think if you ask the average person in a church, what's a good life, they'd all give you a church answer. you know, Jesus, right? Because every answer in church is Jesus. (laughs) But I'm always more intrigued by the honest answers. And one of the best places to find that, at least when it comes to defining a good life, is by asking parents, what do they want for their kids?
0: Because it kind of circumvents their, what, their defenses or
2: circumvents their kind of church pat answers? Yeah, I'll give one answer for myself that I know is the right answer. But what I want for my kids says what I really think. because here's the thing, all parents share this. Every parent wants what's best for their children. And so whatever you think would be best for your child is a good definition of what you actually think a good life entails. Right,
0: for yourself, not yes. just for your child, but for yourself. And so that's why this Pew research Poll they did with parents asking them that question, what do you want for your kids, was so shocking because what they found is that 98%, 98, not, not 100, but as close as you can get, <laughs> 98% of parents said it was very or somewhat important for their child to have financial independence and career success when they got
2: older. Yeah, and it's probably worth pointing out, they were asking parents to rank things. So you can't say everything is the most important thing. There right. were different categories. But compare that to a different priority. Only 53% of parents say that it's very or somewhat important for their child to be married 54% of parents say that it's only very or somewhat important for their children to have children Here's the crazy one though 46% of parents agree that marriage and children are not that important for the future happiness of their child
0: So parents are expressing their desires. They're sharing with you what they think makes the good life, not just for their kid, but for themselves. And what it turns out to be about is financial independence and career success. And that really fits if you look at the choices we make. It seems like that what we really value is trying to work our way up the career
2: ladder. Well, I mean, just ask yourself a question. Why do you live where you live? I think for many people, not for all, but for many people, that is closely attached to, well, that's where I got a job. That's where I could make the most money.
0: Yeah, a lot of people live where they live because that's where they went to school or their family. But I think if you ask it and say, where do you want to live? Like, where
2: are you thinking about moving to? Most people move because of jobs. Exactly. So at the end of the day, whether or not we're willing to admit it out loud to ourselves or to others or to Pew researchers, we think on some level that money and success are the true path to happiness. But the question is, is that right? Is that true? Does money and success equal life happiness? I have to make a list. Literally, this exists in my life. A
0: list of people who have gotten everything that I think I want want, everything the culture tells me I should want, and then aren't happy with it. In other words, they get it and they report back to people like me who have never attained it, that this really isn't worth living for. And the reason I have to have that list is because I'm prone to think that money and career success will really be what
2: gives me a good life. So let me give one example of that. In 1997, at the ripe old age of 27, Matt Damon won his first Academy Award. I don't know if he's won any more It since was for then. Good Will Hunting. Yeah, Did we you just, see that movie? Yeah, great movie. One fantastic of the few movie. few movies I've seen. And he went on to an interview show to talk about this experience of winning an Academy Award and listened to what he said. I yeah, was sitting there, and I remember very clearly looking at that award, and, and I, I suddenly had this kind of thing wash over me where I thought, I imagine chasing that and getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste of your you know what i mean because yeah, yeah, yeah. it can't it's got to be you know what i mean it's not it, it, it can't be good it, enough it, it, right mm, it yeah. can't fill you up it will never if that's a hole that you have that won't fill it and i literally like my heart broke for a second i i it's like i imagined another one of me, you know, an old man kind of going like, oh my God, where did my life go? What what have I done? And then it's over. (laughs) So
0: here are parents wanting financial independence, career success for their kids. And what Matt Damon's saying is, no, I got that. And it doesn't fill that
2: hole in my heart. Another one of my favorite examples actually comes from a high schooler who, you know, kudos to him for figuring this out at 18, had a similar discovery. And this is a kind of viral YouTube video that's been around for a bit. But let's listen into this story from Kyle Martin at King's Academy in Florida.
1: This time last year, I found out that I was in the running for this title. It was then that I decided I wanted it. So I worked hard for it. I sacrificed for it. And yes, I stressed for it, and I got it. (laughs) And at our senior award ceremony, it felt so good when I heard my name announced with this title. It was so good for about 15 seconds. Yeah, 15 seconds of my heart racing and my adrenaline pumping. 15 seconds of, yeah, I won. 15 seconds of being at the top of the pile of all my accomplishments, and it felt euphoric but there must come a 16th second. And on that 16th second, sat down in my seat, I looked at my silver stole that says valedictorian, and I thought, that's it? (laughs) What just happened?
2: So my favorite part of this video is when he's talking about how hard he worked to become a Victorian, and, you know, he put his mind to it. He's stressed for it. The crowd is cheering in the background like, yay, you know, go you. You worked hard. You did the thing. And he totally pulls the rug out from under them. At the end, it says, I did it for 15 seconds
0: of euphoria. And that's really all I got. Well, the reason they get quiet is because all of a sudden they realize that's their life. Mm. Their life is striving for something, and they know that feeling, because we all know that feeling, right? You get something new, you get a new job, you move to a new place, you get a new relationship, and it is exciting for a while, but it doesn't last. And so what causes us all to reevaluate is, what really leads to the
2: good life? Because we all want it, but we can't find it. And I think to answer that question, we have to ask a more fundamental question, which is this, what is happiness? Because at the end of the day, most of us are seeking after some form of happiness. We're making our decisions in part because we think this is going to make my life happier, fuller, more fulfilled, but as it turns out, we don't have a lot of agreement on happiness. In fact, it turns out we aren't even very good at forecasting happiness.
0: Yeah, there's a class at Yale taught by a professor named Lori Santos, and the class is called Psychology and the Good Life. She just offered the class, turns out a quarter of the undergraduate students at Yale sign up for this class, it becomes the biggest class in Yale's history. Can we just
2: pause? These are the best and the brightest in our country, and they are all desperate to take a class that could explain to them how to have a good life.
0: Absolutely. People that we envy and look up to and think, oh, they've got a bright future. But the only problem is they don't know how to be happy. Anyway, this class was so big, it screwed up the whole scheduling system for the semester. They couldn't offer it again. As, I think it was a one-time shot. And then she's written some books and started a podcast and all that kind of stuff. But when she was being interviewed in the New York Times, she said this, Our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery or getting a good grade, are totally wrong. Our intuitions about what will make us happy are wrong. In other words, we think something will make us happy.
2: We go get it, and then we find out that it doesn't. Can I give a creepier example? <laughs> this one's fun. This is creepy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a hotel owner, and he buys this hotel in the 1960s and he's a voyeur. He wants to watch and listen in on people's lives. And so he installs throughout the hotel listening equipment and audio visual equipment so that he can see what people do in their hotel rooms when no one's watching. Now, there's obviously the creepy side of that, which we won't get into, and it was obviously immoral. But at the end of all of this, he actually had a somewhat insightful observation. He said that when people get back to their hotel rooms, they're on vacation. They're in the place that they've, you know, saved up all this money to go and visit and spend time together in. When they're back in the hotel room, they don't tell joyful stories. They don't tell fun stories. They're supposed to be out there having fun on the vacation, but that's not happening. This is what the hotel owner said. They're getting everything they want, but apparently it's not really what they want.
0: Yeah, because they're bickering and they're arguing about stupid stuff and they're all doing their own thing. They think they know what they want but they don't know what they want. And we're the same way. We're not good at forecasting what will make us happy or the opposite, you know, make us really bummed out. Like maybe you dread going to the dentist and then you get done with it and you're like, well, it wasn't that bad. Or I remember right when I graduated from college, I bought a new car. It was the only new car I've ever owned. And it was this white Volkswagen Jetta, brand new, drove it off the lot. And I just had instant regret and that regret <laughs> went for like 5 years i had payments on it and i've never bought a new car since that moment <laughs> but that jetta symbolizes in my mind to me all the things that i think will make me happy if i just get it and it didn't, and so I just have to re-preach
2: the Jetta to my heart on a continual basis. I had a similar experience the first time I bought an iPhone. It was an iPhone 4. I still remember the number, because I had had an Android up until, and this is when smartphones Ooh. still weren't totally pervasive, and I, I really thought when I get this iPhone, my life is going to be better. I'll have the thing that I want. I viscerally remember opening up the box and being so excited, and then looking at it, and it just hit me like a load of bricks. I don't feel any different. Right. <laughs> this has not made my life any better. In fact, in many ways, smartphones have probably made my life worse. But I think the challenge is that we have to figure out how to define happiness. Everybody has a different vision of happiness, a different definition of happiness. Here's an example. The World Happiness Report, and this is the go-to research on happiness. It measures happiness by looking at Gallup poll data for, and this is a quote, six particular categories. This is how the World Happiness Report defines happiness. Gross domestic product per capita, social support, healthy life expectancy, freedom to make your own life choices, generosity of the general population, and perceptions of internal and external corruption levels. Now, I know these are all important things, so I'm not trying to minimize them. But it does seem to equate the happiness of a population with GDP, (laughs) with affluence, comfort, and pleasure. And I just find myself wondering, is that really a great way to define happiness? Well, what you're getting at is that not only
0: are we not good at forecasting whether something will make us happy, but we don't even really have a good definition of what happiness is. And we're getting ready for a private school Patrick moment coming up here, boys and girls, because this is a debate about happiness that people have had through the centuries. And kind of the two camps or the two definitions of happiness are headlined by two Greek words. Oh, I and, can't wait for you to try to pronounce and it. And here we go, buddy. So, I'm going to give it a shot. The one, this is the Aristotle's definition. We can unpack it, but let me see if I can just say it. Eudaimonia? <laughs> it <laughs> sounds, sounds like, like pneumonia. pneumonia. <laughs> Eudaimonia? <laughs> I can't say it. Eudaimonia. 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 And the other camp, the other kind of happiness out there. Oh, here we go
2: again. This one you'll recognize quicker. Hedonia. Hedonia? <laughs> hedonia. That's where we get our word hedonism. And the classic thinker represented in this camp would be Epicurus, although his views were popularized by a Roman writer named Lucan who wrote on the nature of things or the philosophy of things, which I have read, Keith. I told you, were you we were going to have a private school Patrick moment here. <laughs> Okay, So anyways, big picture. There's two different visions, eudaimonia and hedonia. And these two ideas of happiness have been the consistent debating point throughout history. So let's do some definitions. Let's start with hedonia. What is hedonia? Hedonia. Well, I would say that Hedonia is at its root a kind of pleasure. It's laughter. It's enjoying a relaxing drink at a Michelin star restaurant. It's watching an entertaining movie. It's the pleasure of sex and good things. That's what Hedonia is. One thing that's so attractive about this
0: kind of happiness is that it appeals to our physical senses. It feels to our pleasure. It's something that we can all define for ourselves. And the Bible talks about this kind of happiness. And it says, look, you think, that these things that you achieve, you think that these things you can buy or obtain or become will make you happy, but they won't. Here's Isaiah 22. But see, there is a joy and a revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. So there's this idea that you can have all this stuff, the sheep, the fattened calf, you can have all the wine and food and drink, and we're just living it up in the moment. But tomorrow you die. And Paul builds on that later in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, look, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So he's saying that the way that people who don't believe in the resurrection live is that they live for the moment and trying to increase their
2: pleasure one moment at a time. I think that when most people think about happiness, we think about hedonia. We think about those pleasurable meals, those pleasurable experiences. That's in our minds, in our heads, our vision of what happiness is. But the Bible is clear. It doesn't say that these are necessarily bad things, but it says that if you live for these things, you will end up living a life that's full of folly and regret and disappointment. Is
0: this the kind of happiness that, say, Ecclesiastes is about? Mm, yeah. that's it's a vapor. It somewhat satisfies you in the moment, but it doesn't last very long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or when you talk about the hedonic treadmill. That's the idea that whatever pleasure you get, it satisfies you for the moment, but then you've got to have something better next week or next month or next year. And you quickly adjust to hedonic happiness. Yeah, The sense that what was really exciting one moment, then
2: the next time you do it, it's a little less exciting. You see this in brain science. You receive dopamine when you're having these joyful experiences, but the more dopamine you experience from something, the more tolerant your brain becomes to that dopamine. In other words, you need more and more of the same thing to produce the same result inside of your psychology. So that's hedonia. On the other side, we have eudaimonia. And this is what we mean when we say that life is good and flourishing. It's a kind of happiness you hear about when a parent describes the toddler years after they're out of them. <laughs> because in the moment, I mean, I've been a parent of toddlers, it's not always the most pleasurable experience. You have to change diapers or being woken up in the middle of the night. And yet when parents reflect on those moments, they all agree. There's a beautiful duty and virtue and sacrifice that made those moments full and flourishing. It wasn't hedonic pleasure, but it was a deeper, richer kind of happiness. This has been associated
0: historically with Aristotle. Yeah, and the Stoics later on. Who talk about this deeper happiness that transcends the moment and the circumstances that you find yourself in. And the Bible talks about this as well, both in the Old and the New Testaments, I think. So in the Old Testament, you see something like Proverbs 12. Deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil, but those who promote shalom, which is this kind of flourishing and happiness, they have joy, real joy, or Proverbs 14. 30, peace gives light to the body, but envy rots the bones. So there's a kind of peace and a deep pleasure that gives life meaning and purpose and richness. And I think this is the same kind of happiness that Jesus promises in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit or who are meek or who mourn, hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's not saying that your immediate circumstances are going to go well, you're going to get a new job or a raise or a new relationship, but he's saying there's kind of a rich happiness, something deeper than circumstances.
2: Yeah. There are translators who actually say we should translate translate the Beatitudes, not blessed are the pure in heart, but happy are the pure in heart. Not blessed are those who mourn, but happy (laughs) are those who mourn. And on the one hand, it gets at the bizarreness of what Jesus is saying, because it would have been bizarre to his audience as well. But on the other hand, it highlights the fact that there's a kind of happiness that can weather ups and downs. There's a kind of happiness which is deeper and richer and more lasting than the vapor of pleasure in the moment. And Jesus is telling his followers, pursue that kind of happiness. Make that kind of happiness the way that you orient your entire life. So maybe we could just end the podcast right now and say, the Bible says it, let's shut the book. But one of my favorite things about reading all kinds of academic and psychological research is that what we discover as a new finding in the present often reaffirms what the Bible has always called wisdom, and that's exactly what is happening when it comes to this debate around happiness. It turns out that there is a growing body of research which is reaffirming the idea that hedonic happiness is not the thing that we should seek. Instead, we should seek after eudaimonic happiness, this kind of shalom, fulfilled, flourishing life. Well, what we're
0: going to find is that not only did the Yale professor, Lori Santos, agree with the Bible that we're not good at forecasting our happiness, but Harvard also agrees with the Bible of what really makes you happy. So let's start with this. In the late 1930s, the researchers at Harvard started something called the Harvard Study for Adult Development, and they took a bunch of Harvard students as well as some poor kids from inner city Boston, and they followed them in a longitudinal study. So longitudinal mean they just took the same group of people and then tracked them for some of them for 80 years, and they kept adding people to the study. Like if people got married, then their spouses were added to the study. If they had kids, their kids were added to the study. So it became really, really multi-generational men and women, but it all centered around Harvard students and poor
2: kids from inner city Boston. Yeah, so it is the longest longitudinal study on happiness that has ever been done in human history. And people you would know are in this, like JFK
0: as a Harvard student, who is part of this study. So they have all this information. Now it's private, right? It's not been released, but on JFK or Ben Bradley, who is the very famous editor of the Washington Post, when he was a student, he became part of this study and they
2: tracked him in his life. And I think the other thing that's important to note here is that they did have two groups of students. At the time, Harvard typically enrolled students who came from legacy families, which meant families that had a lot of wealth, a lot of affluence and a lot of power. So you have the cream of the crop at Harvard on the one hand doing this longitudinal study. But on the other hand, you have some of the poorest of the poor, children who are living in Boston's inner city, which is important because if we only had one, we might not be able to draw many conclusions. And this study was all designed to figure out what makes
0: people happy. In other words, they're trying to answer the question that we've been wrestling with. That's why they followed these people their whole life and asked them questions every few years and took DNA samples and look at their health records with their doctors. All they were looking for is to answer the question, what makes people happy? Here's the Harvard Gazette with the summary of the findings. Quote, Close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those relationships, they say, quote, are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. And there's a book out recently called The Good Life, and it's by the current directors of this Harvard study of adult development. And it says this in the book. In fact, good relationships are significant enough that if we had to take all 84 years of the Harvard study and boil it down to a single principle for living, one life investment that is supported by similar findings across a wide variety of other studies, it would be this, good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. So we started talking here about what would you do in your life to make you happier? Would it be to move? Would it be to start a relationship? Would it to get a new job? Find a new church? What the Harvard study is doing is saying, no, you know what will make you happiest in your life over the
2: long haul is relationships, close friendships. Exactly, warm relationships. That is the TLDR of a very long book explaining everything that they discovered, which has a lot of overlap with a eudaimonic vision of what happiness is, with a biblical vision. In fact, you could just go back to Genesis 2.18 and find the same principle. This is what God says to Adam when he's alone in the garden. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now just stop and think about that for a second. Adam had everything he needed for hedonic pleasure. He had a beautiful garden with every variety of food and fruit and animal. He could probably make himself Michelin star quality meals. He had sunsets and beauty and all the aesthetic pleasures that anybody could long for, but he wasn't happy. God says this is not what a happy life consists of. What you need is a partner. What you need is a relationship. I think we all know that intuitively and the reason we know it is because we
0: were made in the image of God and God existed in eternity past in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is not a private school Patrick moment. We're not going to have Patrick explain to us the Trinity because I think that might even be over his head. But <laughs> what the point here is that they lived in relationship. We are made in the image of God. We were created to live in community. And what you find today is that people are seeking that out. They don't know how to do it. We as human beings don't know how to do it, but we crave it. So for example, politics, why are we part of certain political tribes? I think a lot of it has to do with community. We feel some sort of I just read an article from David French where he's positing that some of Trump's key supporters, the reason that they are so committed to him is because they've found that community that makes them feel like they matter and that they're onto something that nobody else is. And my guess is that that's true of other political candidates. Or think of something like CrossFit. And, you know, people get into these CrossFit cults. And what is it that causes you to go to CrossFit? I'm just not buying that. It's just that you want to be able to do a bunch of pull-ups. I think it's the community of it that keeps you going back. Or sports teams, why do we love to root for your favorite baseball team, football team, whatever it is? It's because you feel like there's this bonding you have with people in the stadium and other people who are following that sports team. You feel like you're part of Chiefs Kingdom or you know whoever it is that you follow and their fan base.
2: And this explains why our current epidemic of loneliness has been so destructive, not just on an individual level, but on a social level. And this isn't just happening in America. I mean, England created a minister of loneliness because they understood that the health outcomes associated with loneliness were so poor, so devastating, that the government felt the need to do something to address it. Well, what we're going to find is that the government
0: has put their finger on a need, but they can't really solve it. So here you have us in our country who has more education, more financial prosperity, more material benefits, iPhones, smartphones, computers, travel, more entertainment and educational opportunities that we've ever had before than any other group of people in human history. But we're on more psychotropic drugs, more anxiety, more depression, suicide. Why? Why can't we find the happiness that we long for? Because we've looked for it in all the wrong places. And so we have ignored the relationships. Instead, we're lonely. And that loneliness has created an ache inside of us. So in May of 2023, just a few months ago, the Surgeon General comes out with a report on the epidemic of loneliness. And here's a quote from it. He says, we know that loneliness is a common feeling that many people experience. It's like hunger or thirst. It's a feeling the body sends us when something we need for survival is missing. Millions of people in America are struggling in the shadows and that's not right. That's why I issued this advisory to pull back the curtain on a struggle that too many people are
2: experiencing. In the same report, they shared that the average American currently spends about 20 minutes a day with friends, which is down from 60 minutes a day in 2000. I mean, that is a significant decrease in the amount of time we've spent with friends. It also showed that the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously had health consequences, is likely going to have longer-term health consequences in the form of loneliness because during that period, relationships eroded. During that period, people were increasingly out of touch, and they created habits in their life that diminished the amount of time they were spending inside of these warm relationships that the Harvard study is key to happiness and long-term health.
0: We know that one reason, obviously, that we are more disconnected and don't have these kind of warm relationships is because of technology. In the AP article about the Surgeon General report, it says technology has rapidly exacerbated the loneliness problem with one study cited in the report finding that people who used social media for two hours or more daily were more than twice as likely to report feeling socially isolated than those who are on such apps for less than 30 minutes a day. So we can easily come up with a list of reasons that loneliness is an epidemic today. Technology is high on that list. But also, like we've talked about in previous episodes, that less people are getting married and they're getting married later and they're having less children. And so the number of households where people are living by themselves has doubled in the last 60 years. Now, we're not saying it's bad to live alone. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely. But
2: we can see that that is a contributing factor to it. I think one reason why we have fewer relationships, fewer warm relationships, why we're experiencing higher levels of loneliness goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is that we're bad at forecasting what will make us happy. We're bad at creating structures and putting things in our life that actually promote the kind of happiness that we're talking about. One of my favorite examples of this, and it kind of convicted me if I'm going to be honest, was a study that was done about strangers on trains. This is in the book The Good Life where they tell about this. Yeah. So what the study did is it asked people before they got onto the train, do you think you'd be happier on this train ride if you spoke to no one? Maybe you're reading your newspaper, you're on your phone or whatever else you're doing. Or do you think you'd be happier if you had a conversation with a stranger?
0: And this is a commuter train, Chicago. So people trying to
2: get to work or home from work. And no shocker, most people said what I would have said. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Which is, please leave me alone. I want to be by myself. The last thing I want whenever I get onto an airplane traveling somewhere is to sit next to the person who immediately starts trying to have a conversation with me. I'm just desperately figuring out how do I non-verbally communicate to you that I am not interested. Oh, I
0: know what you do. You put your AirPods in
2: <laughs> and you don't even have anything playing in them, but that way it just gives you permission to ignore everybody. Exactly. Yep. it's the beauty of AirPods. But here was the part that convicted me. They followed up with people after they rode the train and they asked them whether or not they had a conversation with a stranger. And what the study showed was that people who had conversations with strangers had more pleasant train rides. In other words, the thing that we think we want, which is to be left alone, is the path to unhappiness. But the thing that we don't think we want, having a conversation with a stranger, is actually the path to happiness. We're terrible at predicting
0: what's going to make us happy. So I'm sure we have all either been in this situation or had a good friend in this situation where they have a good friend group, good community where they are, and they get a job offer. And it's a step up, you know, the ladder. Maybe it's with a new company. Maybe they're making some more money, but it's definitely a career opportunity. And I don't talk to too many people who turn down those good offers, not a lateral offer, but a good offer because they say, well, I just got a great community here and I don't want to leave it. But I talk to people a lot who say, you know, I've moved a few times in the last several years and I don't have many good friends. It's hard to get connected to another set of friends in my new town. Well, right. I get it. It's hard for all this. There's not something wrong with you. It's hard to move to a new community and make good friends. It takes several years to do it. So instead of leaving your Community, your friend group to move for a new job. What if we just said, I don't think that new job is going to make me happier. And I think what will really lead to lasting happiness is staying here connected with my friends.
2: Yeah. I think if you said that to someone in our current cultural climate, they'd say, You're a crazy person.
0: Because they think that the job is more important and they can find friends wherever they are, but this job only exists in
2: a different city. They've got to take it. So here's a new tack I'm going to try with people. I don't know how well it's going to work, but I'm going to start asking them Do you trust the wisdom of Disney or do you trust the wisdom of the Bible? The cat Oh, wow. Yeah. So here's where I'm going. Go watch just about any Disney movie. For example- I don't watch Disney movies. Well, you must watch a lot of Disney movies. Unlike you, I have young children. And so mm. Disney is a part of our life, for better or for worse. And You're uh, not boycotting Disney? I thought everybody <laughs> was boycotting Disney. <laughs> there are certain Disney movies I won't be showing my kids. But <laughs> that said, my kids currently really like the film Moana, which is set in Hawaii, I think. I'm not entirely sure. But here's the point. What's the plot line? It's about this girl who has a longing to go out into the sea, but her community community is telling her that she has a role in her community. And she's literally sings the song, she says, everybody else has a role in this island, maybe I can roll with mine. But what she learns is she can't. She needs to seek the adventure. She needs to leave behind her community. And that's the message of the movie. Don't get hampered down by the people around you. Don't let them put a cage on you. Go, be free, seek the ocean, find the adventure. That's where true happiness lies. Now, I will give credit to Moana. The story ends with her coming back home and being back with her people. So it's not entirely go out and seek happiness in the adventure, but the question is, do you want to follow the wisdom of Disney, that happiness is found by seeking success and pleasure and wealth and adventure, or do you want to trust the wisdom of the Bible, which says that true happiness is found in deep, warm, lasting, virtuous, committed, self-sacrificial relationships?
0: I think a lot of us hear that and we think, yeah, I value that, I want that, and I believe we all do. Unfortunately, we live in a culture right now that doesn't make it easy. So relationships are messy and part of the messiness is just finding time to spend together and we're all kind of running around doing a hundred thousand things. So when you're free, somebody else isn't free to hang out and spend time together. And I was reading back in 1929, Stalin in the Soviet Union tried to create a five day week. In other words, he tried to get rid of the weekend. I don't know how you do this, but <laughs> he went from a seven day week to a five day week and people had to work every day, except they got one day off and they were were assigned the day off. So you just got, you know, your Thursday and somebody else's Friday, and they didn't even set it up so that husbands and wives got the same day off. But you didn't have necessarily the same day off as your friends. So it was a way to separate people and to wear down social connection by not giving them the same time off so they couldn't do stuff together. And that feels like something we've created on our own. Like, it's not being forced on us by Stalin or some government system, but we've Bought into this cultural system that promotes busyness so that when I have time off, my friends don't and vice versa. So
2: it just makes meaningful connection harder and harder. And I think we do this to ourselves. Both Keith and I just finished a fantastic biography of Martin Luther King by Jonathan Egg, E-I-G. I'm not sure how you say his name. Maybe it's Egg. 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 egg? Okay, there you go. See, you get some things right. <laughs> I can't pronounce <laughs> Eudemiah or eunomia. I don't know, but I can Anyways, pronounce Egg. You get I Anyways, in it, he tells the story of the first time Martin Luther King was put into solitary confinement by a very famous and awful segregationist named Bull Connor. And he describes the night that he spent in solitary confinement as the darkest, most awful night of his life. He was someone who really valued relationships. He surrounded himself with people. But as I read it, I thought, how often do we do this to ourselves? I mean, just myself, how often after the kids are down, do my wife and I go out into the living room and we both just pull out our phones? And we're not in physical solitary confinement, but we are in mental and emotional solitary confinement. And we've done it by choice. Why did we do it? Because we are terrible at guessing what's actually going to make us happy. I promise at the end of the night if we had done something different, if we had actually talked to each other and connected, we would have probably left that night feeling far happier than we were just scrolling on Instagram or Twitter or reading articles or whatever it is we're doing.
0: Unless you got an argument. <laughs> Speaking of arguments though, politics seems to be pulling us further and further apart. That's why we wrote that first book, Truth Over Tribe, because we saw that the political tribalism was pulling apart families, friend groups, churches, all kinds of stuff, right? The whole country to some extent. and if we we don't know how to kind of agree to disagree, if we don't know how to talk about things other than politics, it's just another way the
2: system, our culture is set up to isolate us. I think one more reason why we don't have warm relationships is because we've just gotten really poor at developing healthy conflict resolution skills. I meet a lot of people who are either terrified of conflict, so they avoid it, which often means disconnecting with people because I can't see you or else we're going to have a fight, or it means disconnecting emotionally. We're just going to stay at a very shallow level with one another because if we take one step deeper, like you just said, it's going to lead to a fight and an argument. So there's all of these things in our culture right now that are pushing us away from having warm, deep relationships. And I think that the Harvard study and the Bible would challenge us to say, no, you are going to have a richer, deeper life if you choose friendship and relationship over pleasure, over immediate gratification. So I think it'd be great, Keith, if we talked about what is a friend and how do we actually develop the kinds of friendships that produce the kind of good life that the Harvard study and the Bible point us towards. I like the C.S. Lewis way where he contrasts lovers and friends by saying that lovers,
0: their physical posture is to look toward one another. They talk a lot about their relationship and what they mean to each other. And friends, they don't look at each other, at least not normally. They're defined by standing shoulder to shoulder, pursuing some common interest together you know maybe it's fishing or maybe it's politics or reading or home decorating or whatever it is doesn't really matter they're shoulder to shoulder and another way to think about friendships is by a guy named Dunbar he did a study in 1993 and he said that the normal average person can have about 150 meaningful relationships they can have many fewer friends he said probably 12 to 15 and maybe 3 to 5 close friends that that's just all that we can handle emotionally and our time and everything else. And Jenny Gross writing in the New York Times about that study said, Dr. Dunbar defines meaningful relationships as those people you know well enough to greet without feeling awkward if you ran into them in an airport lounge. That number typically ranges from 100 to 250 with the average around 150 so what I like about Dunbar's thing is he just says okay look there's different kinds of friends not everybody is going to be a close friend a deep friend but that doesn't mean they're not really valuable in their life remember the stranger on the train they enjoyed their train ride by just talking to a rando it doesn't even have to be a friend that's how important relationships
2: are so here's my unscientific taxonomy of friendship. I think about friendships in probably five different categories. Anybody could add into this, but I think about deep friends, I think about fun friends, mentors mentees, and work friends. Those are just kind of my basic categories of the kinds of friends I have. So I'll start with deep friendship because I know you don't have any, Keith. <laughs> I don't know, I think it's funny, that your wife referred to me the other day as your work wife. And I was like, oh my gosh, something's weird. That's yeah, a, a millennialism if you've ever had one. Okay, deep friendship. When I think about my deep friends, these are the people who I share my story with. They know where I'm from, they know where I've been, they know who I am, they understand. Where I want to go. They know my quirks. They're the kinds of people who can laugh at you because they see those strange things that only you do that you can't even see. They're the friends that I, by and large, spend most of my time with. They're friends who I actually know them as well. I know their families. I know their children. Their kids are comfortable around me because we spend so much time together. But as a Christian, I think another important component of that is these are the friends that I try to confess my sin to. These are the friends that I actually expect and give permission to challenge and confront me when they see me in sin or they see me treating my wife or my family or my workmates, poorly they're the friends who are encouraging me to grow in my faith and these are the friends who I am calling in times of trouble because I know that they're the friends who will share resources that might be resources literally of money if you're stuck in your need but it might also be resources of time and space that to me is a deep friendship but remember that's maybe three to five friends for most people
0: well, I think if you have three to five of those kind of friends you are a fortunate person because so many people don't have these kind of friends even people with a lot of acquaintances don't have that kind of friend the way I like to talk about this kind of friend is that you don't have to be on your best you can just be you you don't have to be guarded and watch everything you say and if you say something dumb or if you have a bad night they give you grace because they understand you in a broader context right and so there's a sense of grace extended and I like what you said about (laughs) they challenge you you can go are you sure that's right are you sure that's why you're doing this and it's not a big deal then you can just switch and start talking about something fun
2: it's just natural and comfortable One example of this is we're couple friends with another couple and the wife is a nine on the Enneagram. So she's someone who really loves peace, doesn't want to have arguments, which I'm not always the best person to be around for that. And her and I got into a brief, maybe not that brief. We had a little argument with one another about a topic. And afterwards, you know, she's kind of like, oh, I'm sorry. and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I was just having fun. But I walked away from it and I thought, well, that's actually a sign that you and me are friends because you are exactly the kind of person who would never want to have a fight with someone. But you had one with me because you're comfortable. And I had one with you. If I knew you were someone to loved peace, I wouldn't have gone there. But we were willing to have those moments that you wouldn't have with other people because we have a deep friendship. Let's move on to the next kind of friendship
0: you mentioned, which is just people that you have fun with. And these are great friends too. And they're not always your deep friends, by the way. Well, they don't have to be, they can be, they can these be. can overlap, but mm-hmm. they don't have to. I mean, I'm sure you have fun with your deep friends, yeah. but sometimes you just have fun with people. You might go see a movie with them or go to a ball game or go out to dinner with them. You might share some sort of hobby together, but these are just people that you enjoy hanging out with. And I think a lot of guys have these kind of friends, like they're hunting buddies or they watch sports together, that kind of thing. And they just enjoy
2: that. I think about my wife and I, there's probably five or six couples like this who I wouldn't say I have really deep relationships with them. You know, I don't know their stories. We're not talking about, you know, the deeper things in our hearts and lives, but we love hanging out with them because when we hang out together, when we grab a drink, we grab a meal, we have them over, we're laughing, we're telling stories. It's just enjoyable and there's nothing wrong with it. That's a kind of friend that I think we all need.
0: No, you have mentor and mentee and mentee sounds like a church word if I ever heard a church word. Sounds like Mentos so, to me. So is that like the person who is getting mentored or I don't know exactly where you're going with this, so <laughs> you need to do this one. Like,
2: is this official kind of relationship where you yeah. say, would you please mentor me? I think some people are weird like that and do that kind of thing. And it's not a bad thing to do. But when I think about a mentor friend, I think about someone who just by the nature of your relationship, usually someone older, someone wiser than you, is slowly over time sharing advice with you based on their own life, based on their own personal experience, Maybe they're sharing an expertise with you. You share a work field. They know some things that you don't know, and they're helping you to develop the skills you need to be successful where you're working. And there's someone who is invested in you in the sense that they want to provoke and encourage growth. It's a different kind of friendship because if you have a mentor, one thing you do with a mentor that you don't do with a fun friend, for example, is you should always honor and I think show deference to mentors. They're giving something to you. They're offering something of themselves. They are coming to you as a wise person in your life. And so there's a right way in this kind of friendship of showing that kind of deference and honor. Now, a mentee is a different kind of friendship. This is when you, as the older, wiser person, find someone who's maybe not as far along in life. And you're the one who is sharing advice and wisdom. And you're seeing someone who's maybe green in an area and you want to help them grow and become mature. That's a very different kind of friendship. But I think it's a really valuable friendship that we should all seek, especially since Jesus does, by the way, call us to make disciples. And then lastly, we
0: have what you called work friends. And like I said, Emily called me your work wife, which... I think I was supposed to be insulted, but I wasn't for some reason, because I like Emily. <laughs> oh, I don't think it was an insult at all. It wasn't. I think of her as a friend, so I wasn't insulted. But anyway, <laughs> we did this survey at a church of all the people that work in the church, asking them some questions about the culture and the work environment. And this is based on Gallup's organization's questions that have been used, I mean, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of times, I don't know, a lot. And so the data is really solid on them. And one of the questions is, do you have a best friend at work? The <laughs> And when I read that question and we kind of talked about it, we're like, what does that even mean? It seemed weird to me. I thought, well, this is dumb. And then we're reading The Good Life, the Harvard study. (laughs) It talks about that question and it talks about how important it is that people enjoy their job far more if they have a friend at work. It doesn't literally mean your best friend happens to be at work. But when you go to work, do you have friends that you enjoy spending time together? Do you know something about their personal life? Do maybe you go to do a happy hour or something like that to each other? Do you bring? Each other, you know, a birthday card or whatever it is you do. And that makes your work a lot more enjoyable. You like going to work if you have somebody there that you're friends with. And I think one of the things that's made that hard is how often people switch jobs. Because again, all relationships take time to develop. And if you're switching jobs every few years or if you're working remotely, Whether it's because of the pandemic or just because of choices that you've made, that also makes it hard. But you can have friends at work that make the
2: quality of your life better. Yeah, and fun fact, it makes workers more productive. So there's actually a value to organizations to investing. It turns out what makes individuals happy and live a more meaningful, full life also makes organizations happier, more meaningful, more productive. So five different kinds of friendships, deep friendships, fun, mentors, mentees, and friends at work.
0: So, like we said earlier, the government has noticed that there's a problem here, but they can't fix the problem. The Surgeon General can issue a report on the epidemic of loneliness, but how does the government, through public policy, Promote warm relationships. I mean, I'm sure there's some things they can do. But they can give us more money on our tax return that is committed solely to happy hours. So you can <laughs> go to dinner together. That's good. But this is where the church has an incredible opportunity because we as a church have what people want and what they really are having a hard time finding anywhere else, and that is real community. Because think about churches; they're open to everyone, people of all classes and all races, and just everybody can come to church. There's no cost barrier. Like you don't. Have have to pay a membership due, like to join a country club.
2: You don't have <laughs> did, to live in I, a certain zip code. Did I ever tell you I met an atheist once who thought you had to pay money to go to church. He thought there was a membership fee. <laughs> really? <Yeah>. Well, maybe <laughs> we should institute that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but you're right. It's free of charge, one might say. In, inside of a church, a healthy
0: church, and it takes time to develop, but say inside a healthy small group, they should be safe places to be yourself, and it should have diversity of views, diversity of races. You know, you have Men and women, maybe people of different ages. And so inside that church, you have the opportunity to make all those kinds of friendships that we just talked about earlier. And churches are set up to provide a structure and opportunity for people to get to know one another. So this is a moment for churches across America to say, what do people lack? Well, they lack warm relationships. What can we help them do? Develop warm relationships that lead to them following Christ and following God's will in their life. And that will make people happier. We have what they want.
2: And I think it's worth saying we might be the only place that has what they want for free. Yeah, for free. (laughs) You know, because there's other, you already mentioned some. you know, CrossFit, country clubs, HOAs. But what all of those places of shared belonging share is that they cost money. You have to have a certain level of affluence to access the goods that are present in those spaces. The church is the one place that's not like that. And that's why if we actually want to resolve the problem of happiness in our country, we should reaffirm the value. Even if you're not a Christian, you ought to be able to say, this is probably a really healthy, good thing for our social order. Now, I do wanna say this. What some people will say when we say, hey, churches are where you should go and find relationships, say, well, I go to a church and I don't have any friends and it's not really working out for me. And I'm not gonna say that all churches are perfect and and that all churches give great opportunities for this. However, when I encounter most people who say something like that, I often respond and say, well, what are you doing? Because friendships don't just spring out of the ground. They're not weeds. They're things that have to be cultivated. <laughs> <laughs> well, some friendships are weeds. <laughs> you can't get rid of them, no matter how hard you try. No. But it also says Friendships take a significant amount of time and energy. Building friendships is inefficient, It's not quick, it's not rapid. And so I suppose a question we could ask right now is, what can you do to go deeper in friendships? Yeah, so let's just throw out some practical things that we've
0: done over time to develop and cultivate these friendships. And one thing I think you can do is invite people into your home. Now, I'm trying to be real specific here. I think that going out to a restaurant or something with someone, great, do that if you want. But when you have people into your home, it could be to watch a game or eat a meal or barbecue or to play cornhole or whatever you want to do, when you have people in on your turf, there's something about that that creates a level of intimacy. You feel like you got to know people. Christine and I had a couple couples over last night for dinner, and they're just sitting around our kitchen table eating meal that we've prepared that draws you into deeper friendship than if you would have gone out to a restaurant together. So that's one step to take. If you have a friendship that you like to take it
2: just one step deeper, have them into your house. And I think it means a lot to people. There was a really striking moment. This was years ago. Iris had a classmate who was from a different country, Iraq, and we ended up inviting that classmate and her family over. And this was right before they were going to be moving back to Iraq, unfortunately. But at the end of the conversation, the mom kind of got tears in her eyes and she looked at us and she said, you know, we've been here, I think it was for four or five, six years, something like that. Not a single person has invited us into their house until today. Hmm. And it really struck me because what she was saying was, we've longed for this. And, you know, they invited us in return, you know, and so there was a beauty. I wish they would have stayed longer so we could have developed a relationship, but this is something that people long for. Don't just invite people over who have something to offer you. This is Jesus's wisdom, not mine. Invite people over who can't pay you back, who can't give you social favors, who can't buy your next meal. Invite people over. simply because having warm relationships is good for you. It's good for them. And you never know what God's going to do through them.
0: Another thing you can do to take relationships just a little bit deeper is to try to change up the kinds of things that you talk about with people. And we kind of get these ruts where we just have the same conversation over and over. And one of the things you can do to kind of spice it up a little bit is to find something that you will listen to or read or watch and then discuss it together. So you'll have your own interests that will make more sense for you, but let's say the podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, it's super interesting, seven episodes, people would love to listen to that and then discuss it. Or that documentary. I know people probably hate me for advertising this documentary, but I don't care. The shiny, happy people that you could watch on, I think it was Amazon Prime.
2: About the Duggar family?
0: Yeah. It was a four-part little documentary, like three and a half hours combined. And it was was a great conversation launcher.
2: Yeah. We just had a couple over the other night. We had both watched that show. We had a fascinating conversation around that topic. It was great. It was a great way to build a relationship. Or here's
0: another thing is just learn to ask good questions, interesting questions. So just be a person who thinks of good questions, interesting questions to ask, to get a conversation going. If you need help trying to figure out how do I ask good questions? I had Heather Holloman on the podcast not that long ago. You can find it pretty easily. And she wrote a great book about developing relationships and asking good questions. Listening to that interview or reading her book would be, you know, a good thing you could do.
2: I think another strategy is just share about yourself, something that you're excited about or something that you're struggling with. Sometimes people expect to ask someone else a question about the depths of their life and they think, oh, now you're gonna open up. And what I've discovered is that no one wants to do that. But you know what draws people out? When you are willing to share about something hard that's happening in your life or when you're willing to share about something that you're excited about in your own life. There's something about someone opening up their life, their story to you that makes you want to reciprocate and do the same thing in turn.
0: My daughter and her new husband, they just moved recently to start her medical residency. And so they moved to Pittsburgh and it was really hard for me. I mean, I was like, you know, we'd all live together. The six of us had lived together, eating family dinner every week for, I don't know, a long time. And so I just was like, wow, this sucks. It's so hard for me. And I could have just kind of kept all that behind my walls. I'm pretty good at putting up facades. But I just started sharing that with our friends, different friends. And it was interesting how many of them had a similar story literally to that one that they started sharing or they started sharing other stuff. And it was just kind of a domino thing. Everybody's always wanting to talk about things that are hard for them, but nobody wants to go first. And so if you'll just share something appropriate. You don't have to go to the deepest, darkest thing in your life, but just share something appropriate that you're having to think through. And it could be something you're really excited about, but get below the what's happening to the, these are the things I value. And
2: I just think you'll find that people will really connect over that. And I think if you're having fellow Christians over, a similar way of doing this is sharing prayer requests with one another. You can say, hey, here's something going on in my life that I would really love it if you just take some time and pray for, but to also ask others, hey, how can I be praying for you? And one of the keys, if you want to deepen the relationship, is follow-up. I have people who will tell me, hey, would you pray for X, Y, Z? And what they expect is that I say yes, and then I probably don't go do it. Now, I actually have a rule that in the moment I pray for people immediately, because uh, someone once told me that if you say you'll pray for someone and you don't, it's blasphemy. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's stuck with me my whole life. I must have read the same thing. It was Jaren Bars. I feel the
0: same way.
2: (laughs) So I always pray immediately, but I try to pray again. And when I do, I always try to send a follow-up text saying, hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you this morning. And that's what creates some depth to say, wow, you were actually thinking about me when I wasn't physically present. Yes, you just follow up and go, how'd
0: that turn out? Mm, you know, yeah. It's amazing how I many people are like, thanks so much for following up. Thanks so much for asking about that. It really means something to them, I think. But all these kind of tips, advice we're giving, They still take time. I mean, there's not like you just do this and then out will come this great friendship. They all take time, I'd say years probably of investment and they gradually get a little bit better. It's like cooking in a crock pot instead of an Instapot. It's not immediate. It takes a while and that gets
2: frustrating, but you just got to stick with it. When I used to do college ministry, college students are idealistic, and they would often expect that when they came to our college ministry, within a matter of weeks, they would have a group of best friends who knew everything about them. And I would always have to persuade them that that expectation, that idealistic expectation that I'm just going to have deep quick, rapid relationships, that's actually something that destroys relationships. Mm -hmm. Relationships can't grow quickly. They must grow slowly over time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in Life Together, when he talks about how idealism is one of the things that destroys it. So, you know, you have to know yourself. Some people want to go really hot and fast in their friendships. Other people don't want to do anything. They just want to stay on the surface. Knowing yourself will help you know what to expect, and then how to pursue the relationship with wisdom and responsibility. Yeah, it makes sense to me that idealism kills friendship because if somebody has an idealistic
0: view of me then I don't feel like I can be myself because I know I'm going to disappoint them because I can't live up to my own ideals, much less their ideals. And so I think idealism leads to disappointment, leads to judgment, all that kind of well,
2: thing. Well, I think it also puts a pressure on the friendship that the friendship can't bear. I mean, yes. Bridges that can carry a tremendous amount of weight take a very long time to build, a lot of engineering, a lot of blueprinting. That's what goes into them. And if you want a friendship that can carry a heavy load, it's going to take a lot of time to build. The problem is when you have a very rapidly built bridge in a very short period of time, then you say, and now we're best friends and everything's great and we're going to be close. Well, that bridge can't carry the load. It's going to crumble, and you're both probably going to get upset, angry, disappointed, frustrated with each other in the process. So give friendships time. Like you said, it's a crockpot, not an instapot. So this takes us all the way back to where we started.
0: What could you do today that would lead to a better life? And it turns out that what you could do today is make a small investment in a relationship, in a friendship. That's what's going to lead you to be happier a year from now and five and ten years from now. It kind of takes us back to what kind of happiness do you want? Do you want that long-lasting, deep Sense of blessedness, shalom, or the Greek word Patrick will say in a second? Or do you want that quick, circumstantial,
2: hedonistic pleasure, dopamine hit? In the book, A Good Life, they posit a question. They give you two different lives, and you have to ask yourself the question which life would I want? Given all the circumstances, which life would I choose? I've summarized them for you, but you pick which life you want. You could be a boy or a girl who grew up in poverty stricken Boston but managed to go to college, become a teacher, where you had a meager living, you never made much money, but more importantly, you were married to one person your whole life, and you really enjoyed that person, you loved time with that person, and you had children, and you loved time with them as well. And maybe you're a simple person with a simple faith who lived in the same place, going to the same church parish where many of your friends were located, you didn't move around a lot, and maybe you die in a small house, and you don't have much left in your bank account, and maybe your wife dies shortly after. Is that the life that you want or would you pick this life? A boy or a girl who grew up in affluence, who attended Harvard like her parents did and graduated to become a high-powered trader on Wall Street and made a tremendous, immense amount of money, who owned multiple homes and apartments, who got married, but maybe that marriage actually wasn't super happy. And so they ended up getting divorced and they ended up having a string of boyfriends or girlfriends until they died and they hardly kept in touch with the few kids that they did have and they never saw them. Which one of those lives do you want to have? Would you choose the life of the poor man with warm relationships who was never famous, never made much money? Or would you choose the life of the rich man who had a lot of stuff, who had a lot of houses, who had a lot of success, but lacked deep, meaningful relationships? Well, if you want to live for a long time, if you want to have true, deep, and rich happiness, pick the poor life that's the life that you actually want to live. And if you think that's a life you wanna live in the future, you should live that way in the present. Hey, if Harvard, Yale agree with the Bible,
0: if that all fits together (laughs) and they all say the same thing, then that should get your attention, right? I mean, it should get your attention, my attention, even if just Jesus said the Bible said it, but it turns out that data supports it as well. It turns out your own personal experience supports it. So pursue good friendships.